Friday morning, again, uh, candlelighting in New York 712. Uh, this will be the final weekly update before Pesach, Erev Shabbos Haggadah, excuse me, Erev Pesach, rather. Uh, we will not be convening uh, with a weekly update with uh, Malcolm Honline, uh, and not during a Cholamoid, but uh, three weeks from today, uh, which is um, the 3rd of May, the day after Yom HaShoah, we will reconvene and, um, I guess, review everything that's happened over the prior three weeks, which I would guess just the way things are going is going to be a significant amount of information. <laughs> that's what I would guess. <laughs> uh, Malcolm is going to be uh, spending Pesach in Puerto Vallarta. Um, and uh, again, once he's back, we'll reconvene the first Friday in May. Malcolm Honline is the executive vice chairman of the Conference of Presidents of Major American Jewish Organizations, joins us for the Weekly update on a Friday morning broadcast. Mr. Honline, welcome back to JM in the AM. Yeah, good morning to you. Good nerve. Shabbos Yeah, boy, I'll tell you. When you tell us not to believe polls in Israel, it is unbelievable <laughs> how correct you are not to ever believe a poll. And by the way, it extended this time to not believing any exit polls in Israel. Because apparently people don't tell the truth before the election, and they even won't tell you the truth after the election. So and you can't even all sorts of things going on, but pretty much certified. Unbelievable. Like unbelievable. All right, a couple of stories. We'll, we'll get to every angle of this, obviously. And we will talk about Space IL, folks. Don't worry. Got a lot of comments about that this morning. Um, I mean, there are three or four significant storylines with the election. I felt the first big one, and others, of course, put. Uh, we'll discuss in a minute what others felt were even bigger stories, but I thought the first big one was that the major parties garnered 71 votes, and it is amazing, this transition, because we, we had gotten used to Israel's major parties getting between 25 and 30 mandates maximum over the last couple of elections, and the fact that they garnered 71 seats was pretty significant. Uh, others suggest that the bigger stories would be the power, again, shown by the uh, religious parties. Um, many were shocked that the people like Naftali Bennett and Moshe Faglin, especially once the uh, uh, the polls had convinced us otherwise, the people are shocked that they are not part of the uh, new Knesset. And finally, uh, of course, you know, if if the Arabs uh, would go out and vote or if the Arab vote would be more significant, they they could, but I guess they just don't realize could really have a major effect on the direction of the Israeli government. So I, I hand it to you to start wherever you wish. Number number one, we'll start with that one, actually. Number one, were you uh, surprised that the major parties were able to attract the number of people they did and take away so much interest from the smaller parties in Israel? Well, I think there are, as you said, many surprising things in Many questions, analyses that will be done about the voting patterns. What, what, what did they represent a major shift of any kind? Uh, so the the fact that the two blocks, the two major blocks, emerged as strong as they did, uh, may indicate that Israel will move back towards a two major party um, elections in the future, if they can sustain. If if Lapid and and Gans can sustain blue and white, which is not for certain. And what will happen if BB has to step down, or can we could remain a united party, given the strong leaders, uh, people who will be rivals against one another? The, the fact that they targeted 
parties to their left, and in the case of, of Blue and White, and to their right in the case of, of Likud. It's uh, ridiculous, obviously, to have 40 parties running and, and even still to have a dozen in the, in the Knesset. Um, so th- this could be a, a positive move. Uh, you know, it's not such a negative, and it's not anti-democratic to have other parties. It gives expression to minority groups or, or different points of view, people who have a right to advocate for uh, legislation that they see as important or priorities and values that they think are, are important. And this is, uh, you know, often misportrayed, I think. The fact that, that Bennett didn't make it and Fagelin didn't make it despite the last-minute polls that would have certainly in Fagelin's case indicated up to seven seats. Wow. And, and in Bennett's case, it was never that high except ever until from the time he announced initially the reaction was but uh, was stronger but it did not catch on and netanyahu clearly targeted bennett in his uh, in the campaign uh wanting those votes to come under Likud, and now kahlon may come under to rejoin Likud, which would bring him four more seats it doesn't change the gross number of 61 because they're counted anyway as part of that coalition, but it would bring Likud to to um, uh, 40 votes. So the religious parties did very well. I think people were returning to the base in this case, and I think Derry deserves a lot of credit. He's obviously a very shrewd political operator. Nobody had anticipated what he would do, even some who said that he wouldn't make the threshold. Right. So, you know, the the outcome was very different. There are people who believe that uh, many people deliberately lied to the pollsters, both to confound them, but also because they felt that if it shows that Likud isn't doing so well, more people will vote for it to assure that Netanyahu stays as prime minister. But who thinks like that? I mean, you know how many tens of thousands of people you need among the citizens to think like that in order to pull that off? Well, I'm just saying what some people have asserted in the course of the post-election analysis. To me, the important thing, and I, I think I mentioned this to you on, on the air a couple of weeks ago, why when you asked me about the projection that right. Bibi would win, when I heard that the children of friends of mine in Israel and young people I spoke to when I was there and even since told me that they would vote Netanyahu, when in fact the projection and the uh, uh, predictions were, and there would have been that they would vote with a new party, a fresh party, different, more centrist. And, in fact, young Israelis are uh, leaning more conservative and that they that many of them, um, the millennials, voted for uh, Netanyahu in this, in this election. So whether that has long-term implications also, we, we will see. And the reasons that they gave, what were the priorities? Obviously, the economy always, and Netanyahu is credited, with the original steps when he was Minister of Finance, but also sustaining the startup nation policies, et cetera, that the economy is growing at 3.5% and something that he has touted. And whether or not he's directly responsible, certainly governments take get credit, just as they will be criticized if the economy was going the other direction. Uh, there are problems in the economy like everywhere else, but certainly strong showings and the projection of 35 again for, for this year. Uh, th- then secondly that he has, and cited by many young people, the only one who, can, who talks both to Putin and to Trump and has good relations with them. 
and the uh, outreach to the Arab countries, the fact that he that Israel's isolation is broken with Africans and South Americans and all of them coming, something young people but older people as well picked up on. Yeah, traditionally though, that's not a young a young demographic issue though. You know exactly, and that's that's the point I'm making is that the you know the criteria at least that they said uh, were surprised was surprising security was not surprising, and there you would have thought blue and white had a a distinct advantage with all the former uh, chiefs of staff running uh, the party, essentially. But they do credit Netanyahu with not going to war, not being somebody who rushes to war and sustaining it, even though there are obvious security threats and more steps have been taken, they're not resolved. So it's interesting to see what are are the issues that people, and then, of course, the domestic issues, the social issues, are important. But we're not, um, we're clearly not the the issue that motivated a lot of the voters. Uh, Explain a couple of things. First of all, you just alluded to the fact that that the blue and white party, it's possible they won't survive. Um, That is because of what? No, No established policy or a personality that you know hasn't come really to the fore, even Gantz hasn't really come to the fore to be a leader of the party. What is it about them that so many people are predicting doom over the next half a year or so? Because it was cobbled together. It was, uh, and whenever you, you bring different uh, elements together, you always run the risk under time of tension or period of disappointment that they didn't win and that they portrayed themselves as having won. Uh, and the differences between the, the camps and the you saw it during the campaign, there were internal rivalries, as there are certainly in Likud, but you have a, 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 at least one strong leader at the top who clearly has uh, an extra sense about how to, to deal with the politics of Israel. And very shrewd, even though it comes under criticism for some of the things, clearly it, it works. In there, you don't have uh, uh, somebody, a unifying force, a figure between Gantz and Lapid. So they could, you know, go back to to their own parties if they're looking to the future. You know, do they believe that that it will be best served by staying together or by going on their own? Lapid, uh, uh, some people say, was a a hindrance to to Gantz, that there were people who didn't want to vote and didn't want to see rotation. Uh, Others will say that, you know, he was more experienced and that he took over and ran the campaign at the end, uh, the last part of it. So the... The, you know the and and we haven't seen an ideological coherence yet. Not that there are big differences. There are also not big differences between Gantz and Netanyahu on most of the the key issues. You know, he ran on corruption. You know, with all that you just said, it, it's not the craziest thing to think and to conjecture that Bibi could really eliminate the influence of any small faction, and let's for a moment call the Haredi slash religious parties a small faction for a moment. I know they're very influential. He he could he could offer a coalition agreement with someone like Gantz. He's got plenty of portfolios, including some security-type portfolios, that, that he could fill that personnel with, and they could have you know a reasonable government moving ahead. Do you think there's any thought of that? Well, certainly there's a lot of speculation about it. Uh, and it would relieve the pressure off of Netanyahu. Yeah. But Gantz and Yalom and others have said they will not serve in a government if Netanyahu is there. So there could be a, a unity government if Netanyahu steps down. Mm. Now, we don't know how long this government is going to last, because within the year we, we will see the, the, the charges 
being brought, and Netanyahu will try to change the law about indicting a, a sitting prime minister. Right. Uh, with this current configuration, I'm not sure that he could get that through. And then the the um, public opinion and this would be very strongly uh, opposed to his continuing if. He, He's indicted, certainly if he's convicted. A, a prime minister doesn't have to step down, unlike a minister who has to under indictment, uh, because they say a minister, if he's found innocent, then can go back to the job. Right. A prime minister, once they step down, can't go back. So the law gives a prime minister much more leeway. The question is, does he try to make a bargain, a deal to drop the charges, step down? Does he... Um, you know, certainly it will be finishing the year and and maybe longer before anything really happens. Uh, so there are a lot of question marks on each front. And if he does, what happens then within Likud for the succession when you have so many strong leaders like Edelstein and Saar and uh, Erdan and others, who all of whom would like to be the inheritors? Um and Gans and, uh, and and Blue and White, even now from the perspective of President Rivlin, Gans and Blue and White, even if they did have the religious parties with them and some of the fringe parties that they would be natural partners with, they still, math-wise, they still would not have enough to get the 61 mandates, correct? They would not have enough votes. And what you said about the uh, Orthodox parties there, at least there's a unifying right. value structure and certain goals that, that bring them together and they sustain. You know how many parties get started and then drop off, right. whereas the religious parties, you know, sometimes go down in number but reemerge very strong. When, and, do you, when do you think the historical watershed was for that? Because after every election there was always, you know, and before most elections, there was always, you know, some thought that the religious parties could really as a block be, you know, kingmakers and they'll, you know, wait things out to see who gives them a better deal, the right or the left. And now it's like a fait accompli that everyone knows, not just now after the election, but even before and during, that they're basically aligning, you know, with Netanyahu. When would you say historically that, you know, became uh, the definite, that they're essentially, you know, right-wing partners? I would have to guess that that, that it was an evolution, not a, um immediate, and I think the Growth in numbers in the in the uh, Haredi community really uh, are dictating this. That you know, many or religious and Orthodox Jews vote the general parties as well. Right. They don't all vote the, the Haredi parties. That those who listen and, and there are gedolim that told people vote for for the uh, religious lists, right. but uh, a good number of the people don't. The uh, so the the showing while very strong compared to other smaller parties, is, is again because of the defined constituency agenda, et cetera, that they are, are uh, advocating. The, um, and Netanyahu obviously appeals to them. They would not go, the religious parties, I do not see that they would go today, as they did in the past with labor right. for, for many, many years, uh, go with a, a coalition with Lapid, as you know, there are many who are opposed to him, and he has said things, others have said things, you know, about the stopping the Haredim uh, uh, campaigns, then um, th- th- I think that their options are really uh, more limited. It's America's one and only Jewish moments in the morning radio program heard on listener-sponsored digital radio around the world on the web at NahumSiegel.com, on the NahumSiegel Network, and, of course, on the beloved NSN app. Reminder, our next weekly update will be May the 3rd at 7.40 Eastern Time, May 3rd. 7.40 Eastern Time will be the next weekly update as we wish everybody a wonderful upcoming holiday of Pesach. 
Malcolm Honline is with us. Um, you, you real? I'm, I'm sure you've thought of this, but but it's just it's interesting to 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 mention. So, person number thirty six on Lee Kud and person number thirty five on Blue and White never dreamt they'd actually get into the Knesset. And, and now, if you pay attention to some of the people at the bottom of those lists, you know that you know a, a lot of unexpected victories. Yes, and there's a lot of commitments that have to be fulfilled. There's a lot of uh, shifting that will take place. But you're absolutely right. The the you know the people would have assumed, let's say, with Likud when they started out, that number 27 would be safe, number maybe right. 29, 30. But I don't think people thought that over 30 on either part side was uh, something that would be assured. And now they do. And I think a lot of people in you know um, Bennett's party certainly assumed the first five, six were safe to get in probably starting out with a much higher number. Um, and uh, Fagelins certainly thought until last week that they were getting in. Yeah. Um, so it's going to be interesting to see how the, the lineup, and and if does he, for instance, does Netanyahu reach out to uh, the former Minister of Justice, Jaqued, and invite oh, yeah. her to join uh, Likud? Would be a good idea. Would be a good idea. She was very popular yeah. and um, um, herself by doing this. So if we, I mean, just for the purposes of, you know, the, the way people watch spectator sports like this, if we call Bennett and um, and Fagelin losers and all this, is Lieberman a winner or a loser or, or basically Parv in this uh, aftermath? No, I think he's a, he's a winner in the fact that he, um, he didn't get big numbers as he did sometimes in the past, but he has a loyal Russian following. He appeals to them. He, he takes an anti position. He takes other positions uh, that um, they support. And he just squeaked through and then immediately went on vacation, which is something he did the last time, too, because he, he doesn't want to engage in negotiations yet. Right. Uh, he wants to be there to be the, you know, to put him over the goal line right. of 61 and therefore negotiate the best possible deal he can. Obviously, I think he wants to be Minister of Defense again. Mm-hmm. And uh, that might be the price Netanyahu will have to pay. I don't see him doing without it. You know, but uh, everything is possible. Uh, he's a pragmatist, uh, and he he will do whatever perpetuates their position in in power and enables them to continue to to play this role. It's a strange schedule for us because normally this is happening toward the end of the secular year. You have Pesach right in the middle. How quickly can all this happen? I mean, by the time we sit down to the seder, we would probably be at what point in this whole process? Well, by next week, first of all, we'll have all the final counts, and you'll have, you know, the little start ending speculation, but the negotiations have already begun about the next uh, government, and next week the, the president will summon the different parties. We will make probably the decision as to who he's going to ask. He may, you know, drag it out until Halamoid, but not much more, and then the parties, whoever he selects, will have... Um, two periods of time up to, I think, a total of 40 or 42 days oh. to form a government, in which case, if he fails, it goes then to the other major party um, in, the, uh, in blue and white to, to do it. The president will, you know, will approach him, unless he doesn't think anybody can do it. You could go back to elections. There are people who believe there will be elections in a year or in two years anyway. Uh, I don't I don't think that that kind of speculation is is meaningful at this point, right. but the the nobody can see how they would get to a majority of sixty one for the center left as opposed to the center right coalition where the numbers hang together. 
Um, so we're talking about, I don't know, sometime in May or June, obviously, when, when he officially will be prime minister again. I think it could be in May. Right. And then in June, we may well see the rollout of the deal of the century. Uh, should we just uh, should we just learn to live with it in terms of the uh, vitriol and terrible disunity uh, during the campaigns and before these elections? Do we, do we just have no choice at this point? It's, it's really not going to change as we get further and further down the road. I, I don't see change. There are a lot of people who called for it. There are a lot of people who have tried to run decent campaigns and have, uh, and have not engaged in in harsh language. But you know the stakes are high, and it's a you know, the participation at every level, even from people who don't vote, is very great. Yeah. And, and um, as you see, even in America, people who, who can't vote in the election but certainly try to influence it. Yeah, no question about it. All right, as come to some of the big questions or bigger picture questions. What does this all mean now for President Trump's, um, you know, uh, a peace uh, proposal, whatever it's going to be, and and whoever's going to be included in it? First of all, Timetable-wise, do we assume now that the election's over that we're actually going to learn what his piece of proposal is? Uh, that's number one. And and secondly, I don't know, is it a good thing that the prime minister, who we know has a good relationship with him, is now in that position? Would it have been much different if the prime minister would not be in a position to be uh, you know, prime minister again? Uh, what can you tell us about Trump and Israel? Well, if the prime minister had not been reelected, it probably would have taken much longer to form a new government and to have it in place and in position to, to negotiate, and they probably would have put it off longer. Um, obviously, Trump welcomed the election of Netanyahu, but he did say that there were two good men, uh, referring to both before the election. Uh, the, the There are a number of factors uh, that have to be taken to, into account. There, there were, I think it's amazing how they've been able to keep it under wraps, and the um, amount of time and effort that has been put into this. Um, but sensitive to to the realities on the ground. The one is that the Palestinians continue to reject it and continue to say that they won't negotiate on the basis that America doesn't have credibility. I think that the Arab states might play a more um, positive role in terms of saying it's a basis for negotiations. You should come to the table. I think that Netanyahu will like, and as the president said and others have said, there are things that they won't like, um, parts of the deal, but he cannot turn down the opportunity to participate in any process of that kind that the United States initiates. Uh, I think it will not be, uh, and this is my assumption, a move towards a final deal, but as much as a progression and talk about first states, the steps like economic development, and they have been shopping for money and support, and it's not clear that they're getting it for the... um, for the economic development programs uh, in the West Bank and else, elsewhere, the the, um, um, the and then we have to see how the rest of the you know the other Arab countries around the you know Egypt pulled out of the Arab NATO surprisingly this week and didn't participate in the meeting and uh, whether the internal divisions within the Arab world will play out. We don't have today literally one. Uh, stable, fully stable Arab country in the whole region. The only stable country or countries in the whole area probably would be Cyprus and, and Israel. Wow. When you when you look at the situation in Algeria, or the situation in, in um, Tunis, in, in Libya, falling apart, Egypt with really serious challenges, Libya, uh, but, but Egypt more stable, in Libya, 
um, in in detribalizes the Sudan, uh, uh, failed states, Lebanon, Iraq, uh, Iran, and, and Turkey with real economic problems and internal dissensions, and the elections in Turkey underscored that. Literally, you go every country in the region and you see that there is so much instability in there. They don't want to see anything that adds to that. So they're going to be cautious about how they respond to to an, the initiative, even though it comes from the United States and allies would, would want to support it. But the latest polls show that 65% of Palestinians said that uh, that their leadership should reject the U.S. peace plan, uh, and 6% said accept it, and the balance of the 20% said, you know, negotiate over it. But the the overall attitudes that one sees where they say overwhelmingly, almost 80% said no land swaps, no... Um, Agreement that leaves Israel with security control over parts of of what the, they consider part of the Palestinian state. Uh, Netanyahu has clearly come out during this campaign against the Palestinian state and not promoting the two-state solution. But I think where the you know the, where, the, where the United States is uh, good offices to to appeal to him, and uh, he could certainly not uh, turn down the. Um, President Trump and, and say that he won't participate in it, they'll obviously be critical. And I think they prepared everyone uh, for the fact that if you're putting forward a deal, you can't put it forward just as a, as a one-sided um, arrangement. But, you know, the, the deep-seated hatred that has been inculcated in generations of Palestinians in particular, but Arabs in general, you know, and now we're paying the price for it because people are not attuned and ready the idea of accepting, fully accepting Israel in the community that they, they um, you know, will accept a, a particular economic deal or some uh, connection, even though more leaders, including uh, Bahraini, Foreign Minister Omanis, others have spoken out very clearly in the last few days about the need to accept Israel. The fact is that uh, overall, overwhelmingly in the 80s and even some countries in 90 percentiles, they do not support yet accepting Israel fully. I think that the, um, the what everyone fears is not really the plan or what the plan might say. I think everyone fears whether the president will apply pressure uh, to the prime minister, you know, pressure that will be, you know, too great to withstand or, you know, too difficult to withstand. We, we just don't, you know, with presidents, we always say presidents of the U.S., we always say about their, uh, you know, efforts to uh, establish a legacy and what better way to do it than with Middle East peace. And I, I think that that's what scares everyone, those of us who are observing all this, not the actual plan, no matter what it says, but what, what the U.S. attitude toward Israel will be once the plan is revealed. So I think the people involved are not doing this as just as an ego trip. I think that they really believe it and want to, to do the right thing. There are obviously people who are very supportive and sympathetic to Israel and its security needs, which the president and the vice president have always said is the number one consideration. Uh, and certainly Secretary Pompeo is very strong on this issue. I heard him yesterday at the swearing of the Elon Carr as the new anti-Semitism special envoy. I mean, the depth of commitment and, and support is uh, is very great. So the the um, but but the administration has put so much into this right. that they will obviously put pressure and. I think we can anticipate that they will want to at least get the people to the negotiating table, and Israel shouldn't be painted into the corner to be the one that says that they reject it. They will 
they will say, look, there are part we like, part we don't like, and that's why you then have negotiations. But as I said, you can't divorce this from the realities on the ground. When we see in Lebanon the kind of of internal problems and the growing role of Hezbollah, the situation where this week on on Iran that we saw the revelations of both in terms of their nuclear program and the sites that they didn't know about and that came out of the documents. That <laughs> and they seem they, to be readily willing to admit to it now. <laughs> and, and and they acknowledge yeah. this, this at least these, this one site, but there are many, and that the IEA, International Atomic Energy Agency, people never even investigated and didn't even see. And they see that the, um, you know, and as Iran looks at the own, their own projections, which say that, IMF said this week that they'll, the economy will be down 4%. Uh, last year was down 4%. And this year, they think that the uh, inflation will increase by 6%. And all the projections, economic projections for them are terrible. So you might look for, you know, diversions or uh, other issues. And at the same time, they face a lot of internal um, uh, challenges. But the situation in, in Damascus, they closed their... Um, military bases around the Damascus International Airport uh, under Russian pressure, uh, but they're still allowed to bring in light equipment, but the missiles and the uh, precision guidance systems and all that will have to go either through Iraq or through Lebanon to get to Syria. Um, But the situation there certainly in Syria is not stable. I think the situation in Iran and, and in Turkey will not be so stable, and that while they have very strong governments that have a hold over the people and can do a lot. You saw in the election in Turkey that the Ankara and Istanbul both went against Erdogan. It was shocking to him. I'm sure he did not anticipate any of this happening. So then you have to see what what does Iran's economic conditions impose? Will Hezbollah be continued to be cut back and Hamas, as the reports are now? Will will they pull out of Syria? Will they regroup in in Lebanon, where they obviously are taking increasing control? And do it when? At what point does it become in their interest to heat up the border uh, with Israel? Does an American proposal right. uh, get a response from Iran, which is chafing under all the additional sanctions and the new, you know, the designation of the Iran Revolutionary Guard, is a very significant move. I know people don't necessarily consider it when they hear the announcement that it sounds good. But in fact, they control a significant part of the Iranian economy. They travel. They have businesses. All of those will become under the, the these new sanctions that are being uh, I- imposed uh, on them. So you can't look at a peace proposal in isolation from what is happening on the ground in the region. Jordan, we see the demonstrations by even Bedouins against the king. And they they were his front line of defense and support um, that the the situation there and there's a lot of speculation people put out about a million refugees will go under the plan to Jordan and there'll be a confederation and stuff and uh, as one of the people involved said you know this is all pure inventions and speculation on the part of people uh, they have only a few people really know what's in it and I don't know how much we'll know even when they announce it. But the, you know, the, the, I think that they have no choice but to have to come forward with it in a reasonable time. All right. A couple of things before I ask you for a, a big picture answer regarding the upcoming holiday, which we'll wrap up with. Um, do, do, they, do the Arabs get it? And, and by the way, you may tell me I'm wrong that, that they are 
that their real opinion or real feeling is that they feel they're not going to make any difference anyway. But do they get that if they would, in fact, vote and would not boycott the Israeli election, they could have, at least in terms of the results, they could have major influence? Well, they do have major influences still, and they are uh, they could have, as you said, a much bigger percentage uh, if they really turned down. But, you know, this is part of the ongoing um, M.O., modus operandi of the of the Arabs, the Palestinians, too. Think of what they could have done had they accepted all the aid, had they cooperated with Israel, had they uh, worked together. Uh, Abbas not been a rejectionist, and and over all the years of uh, the deals and offers, that they don't put the interests of the people, they don't look at the, the, the long-term uh, interests of their community, and even on a, a larger uh, impact, they they react and and they punish themselves and their own future and their own children by some of the acts that they do the boycotts the uh, refusals to to uh, cooperate and to participate as you said in this in the government they would have a greater leverage they have leverage now and we see the Druze community Bedouin community becoming more politically active but boycotting the the election is is just cutting off their nose to spite their face All right. All right, anybody who follows me on Facebook and those listeners, of course, of this program know my reaction to Space IL, uh, which so many people uh, listening right now uh, witnessed yesterday or at least participated in by watching the live feed. What is your reaction uh, on this Friday morning to Space IL? It was a great achievement that they are only one of seven countries to achieve moon orbit. They're only one of four to five to land on the moon, even if it's a crash landing. The fact is that it will reach the moon that they uh, projected back to pictures, and it worked perfectly up until that point. It's something that can be corrected, and God willing, the, the financing and other, other support will be there, as Prime Minister said, to finance it, to think that for under $100 million they did this when countries spent billions in order to have a space program and to be able to launch a, 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 a satellite to the moon. And I think it's disgraceful that the BBC led the headline, Israel fails in attempt. The New York Times right away started mocking it and yep. and uh, portraying it in a negative sense. When you think about this little country achieved something that only the great powers like India, China, United States, Russia has, has achieved in the, in the past. So we can i think revel in the in the outcome and and say that the, the genius that that did this and i think whatever mis- went wrong there at the very last minute will be corrected uh finally you know tomorrow is an opportunity for leaders in the jewish world uh, rabbinic leaders and those who are responsible for addressing their congregations and communities uh to really concentrate on national messages uh, particularly about the future of the Jewish people. I know that sometimes the details of the upcoming holiday dominate the Shabbos HaGadol presentations. Uh, would you join me, Malcolm, in encouraging our leaders of all types uh, to present uh, at least partly, if not completely, on the uh, on the bigger picture issues uh, affecting us and the future of the Jewish people? Well, I certainly, uh, so you know, I certainly endorse that and hope that they will also talk about the relevance to today, both of the Seder experience of the contents of the Haggadah and uh, even Shabbos Haggadah, Shabbos Haggadah because of the, the, the Ness, that the Jews were great, that the Jewish people took the God of the Egyptians 
and took them to the bedpost and told the Egyptians, when asked, what are you doing? They said, we're going to sacrifice their deity. And, and it's the emergence of the Jews after all the years of slavery and, and deprivation and denial that they had the inner strength, the, the, the conviction, the belief, and the trust in that that they could rise at that moment um, to, to, that, to the pinnacle of, of, uh, to, of, of being able to stand up against their oppressors and to, to take this kind of a bold action. When we see all the threats around us today, and people should talk about it and continue to remind people. We were at NYU this week for a meeting of the conference at NYU, but we met also with the students, and it was horrific what we heard. This on a New York campus of the harassment of the of the discriminatory practices, and it's true at Columbia, it's true at Kingsborough right now. We have problems alone, let alone all the anti-Semitic attacks that continue apace at this these high numbers and the, um, uh, you know, the, uh, what, what we see on the Internet in so many places uh, where anti-Semitism, big lies, the media distortions and misrepresentations, only when we stand up to it that we not be caught in a slave mentality, that you stand up and you speak out intelligently and strongly, both to the media, to public officials, to others, to make demands of them uh, and to find out where you really stand on issues that presidential candidates can already say that they're going to go back into the JCPA, that they're going to do other things, and that the and the need for for every party and everybody to stand together in denouncing anti-Semitism as we would racism of any kind. The lesson we saw from Airbnb this week that after everyone told us, you know, you're not going to get them to reverse with the lawsuits that were brought with everything else, the pressure that we and, and others have sustained over the time to tell them the reality on the ground, that we're not going to allow that kind of precedent to be set. And, you know, people after the initial thrust, were, some people came to me and said, why are you continuing this? Because I said, you can do it. You can achieve it. They just have to know the price they're going to pay. By, by doing this, and many non-Jews, you saw how many governors and state legislatures, others warned them with their IPO would fail, et cetera. So I think that the lesson we have to take away is not one to, to decry and just to be, be, be moan, but to strengthen, to say we can overcome. I'm Yisrael, we, we have a Kodesh Baruch Hu with us. A Kodesh Baruch Hu matzileinu miyadam will sustain us. Thank you very, very much. Enjoy Pesach in Vallarta. Oh, we'll think of you. And, and we I will. know how much you enjoyed saying it, so I think you can do it till Shavuos at least. <laughs> and, and, and yeah, if you meet anybody there ripping off my act, I want to know about it. Yeah, uh, well, make sure. And we will speak in three weeks. Have a wonderful Chag, and uh, thanks for joining us. And Shabbat Shalom. Shabbat Shalom. Malcolm Honline is executive vice chairman of the Conference of Presidents of Major American Jewish Organizations. Joins us Fridays for the weekly update here at JM in the AM. And I uh, thank him for joining us.